You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at, again, I think if you look at the Bible now, you've got your English Bible, and you have a question, how did it get here? And so we're going to talk about the next steps after what we talked about this morning. How did it get here? And so there's quite a few little basic facts. So if you like facts, you'll like this part, and if not, maybe not. But um, first of all, the Bible was written primarily in two languages. The Old Testament in Hebrew, there's a few smatterings of Aramaic, and the New Testament in what Dave introduces, Koine Greek. That's the everyday Greek language. So it wasn't the educated Greek language, it was kind of the marketplace Greek language. So if you read the Old Testament in the original languages, you need to know Hebrew. The New Testament, um, Greek. And the interesting thing about these two languages is, um, well, in Hebrew, there's no spaces between the words, and there's no vowels in the early, early copies of it, but there are vowels now. They put vowels in. The Masoretes put vowels in later on. There's no verse, there's no verse um, little numbers in there either. That was put in much later. And in Greek, again, there's no spaces between the words. So you can imagine that it's a little harder to read when it looks like that. Now there's spaces between the words when you read your Greek New Testament or your Hebrew Old Testament. Both of them are dead languages, so nobody speaks Koine Greek anymore, and nobody speaks Ancient Hebrew anymore. So again, much harder to deal with than a uh, language that's still being used today. And Latin would be similar, right? No one speaks Latin anymore, though people still take Latin in school. So and people still study Hebrew and Greek. Um, but the earliest fragment of, that's been found of Hebrew is, this is called the Seal of Jeroboam, who was one of the kings in the northern kingdom. And this is his seal. And you can see that little writing Hebrew at the top, and there's a little bit at the bottom. And that was the first Hebrew script, and it was, it was, it's called Paleo-Hebrew. So it's really early Hebrew. And then they switched to a square script, which was more similar to the Aramaic uh, later on. So every, almost everything we have in Hebrew is in the square script, but there's still very old um, fragments of the old script, the Paleo-Hebrew. And um, in, the, in the ancient Near East um, and in the Roman world, there wasn't many people who could read. Maybe 10 to, 10 to 20% of the Roman world was literate. And typically, the literate people were wealthy, and they weren't slaves, and um, they were male city dwellers. So those are the people, to, people who could read, probably in the Hebrew world as well as in the Roman world. So the, it, so the Bible couldn't have been read by the everyday person, for sure. This is what early Hebrew looks like at the top, and this is what the later Hebrew script looks like on the bottom. And the first two letters of Hebrew are these two, Elephate. So it sounds like alphabet, but similar. So almost they, they don't, they're very similar um, sounds to the English in the consonants, but the vowels are, there are many less vowel sounds in Hebrew. And Hebrews read from the opposite way we do. So I, I'm not very good with my left and right. Right to left. <laughs> so that this is the first letter, and this is the last letter. They also read top to bottom. So the Hebrew Bible, the front is the back, what we consider the back. When you open it up, you start at the back, not the front. 
And here are some actual texts, old texts that you can see. And it, this, is, this is a text from before there were vowels, and this is the text after there were vowels. And you can see, can you see the points? The vowels are all points and dashes. And so the Hebrew root word is just vowels, I'm just consonants, sorry. And then the vowels were added, as I said later. And there's Greek, there's an ancient Greek text, and you can see, again, the words don't have spaces, there's no punctuation, and there are the letters. And also they start the same, alpha, beta. Um, now, one thing that's interesting to note is that the, the Bible, um, and especially the New Testament, is the most um, validated document in the ancient Near East, or in the ancient world. So there's 6,000 early manuscripts of parts of the New Testament, whereas the next closest uh, document is Homer's Iliad, where there's around 640 copies. So 6,000 copies of the New Testament, 600 co 640 copies of Homer's Iliad. So the New Testament is the, by far the most well-documented text. So if you want to say... It's, if we, we know more about what the, the original manuscripts would look like for the New Testament than any other book from the ancient Near East, we're pretty clear on what was originally said because we have so many copies of it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the transmission later on. But the manuscripts, so manuscripts were, are handwritten copies of a literary text. That's what a manuscript is. So if you wrote a letter to your friend by hand, that's a manuscript, okay? And they were copied by scribes, and so they take the text and they copy it, and copy exactly what was there. And like I said, there's over 6,000 copies of those handwritten texts from the, from the, that are very old. So they were, first they were written on papyri, or sheets of flattened leaves of the papyrus plant. And so the first, the oldest script is what um, David showed you a little earlier, that little, it's the size of a credit card, it's the size of the book of John, and somewhere around 130 to 150 AD. That's the oldest copy of any of the Bible we have. So that would maybe be if John wrote in 90 AD, which is the guess, maybe 40 years after John wrote it, we have a copy of, of a manuscript written on papyrus from, from that time. And the papyrus plant, they take from the Nile River, you know, flatten it out, and then use it to write on. It was, so one sheet was the cost of a day's wages. So what would that be today? Like, of a labor, $100 for one sheet. You can imagine how, how precious those copies were. And they also used, they wrote on the skin of animals. And um, so one animal could provide two sheets. And a parchment of the whole New Testament would, would require 50 or 60 animals to write on it. Again, you can imagine the cost of that. It was very costly to make a copy. They also used wax tablets, and uh, similar to Slater Chalk, so they had a little tablet with wax, and they would uh, carve into the wax, and um, they could erase the wax if they made a mistake. And... Um, they, they, could, they used them for shorthand, actually, wax tablets. They also had um, broken um, fragments of pottery. They recycled and used them to write on as well. 
So these are um, these are things we find. Then they they also and you can see that from reading uh, some of the from the Jesus stories. They also had scrolls or parchment. Um, where they could make books from them or make big scrolls from them. And they, they make these from either the parchment, the animal skins, or the papyrus. And they, if they were books, they'd bind them together. And they'd use um, glue or they'd sew them together. And when they made these books, they'd only use the right side of the paper. So if you've got your, your book, they would only write on this side. They wouldn't write on the back of the paper. They were too thin. I'm not sure they did. But they only wrote on the right side. And then finally, um, they would bind these together and they'd stack them and they get bigger for the codexes. And so, obviously, when we find old scraps, old manuscripts, they're going to be on one of these. They might be on, on the broken um, fragments of pottery, they might be on papyrus, or we even have some codexes from fairly early, so the whole book that was bound together. And, and there was whole industries... Oh, I I had there were whole industries of monks that would work on um, copying these texts because they were very important to preserve them because they had issues of theft, there was water damage and decay, and there was no printing press at the time, so each text had to be manually copied over and over again. So it was a big, huge endeavor to do that one by one and to keep, obviously, to keep it accurate. And so because we have all these different copies and then our final version, what, we, what a whole realm of study that's grown up is called textual criticism. And the idea of textual criticism is you're trying to find out what the original manuscript said or the autograph. What did it originally say? Because now we have something that's been copied a hundred times over. Is it the same now as it was back when the first person wrote it? And so I'm going to use this as an example. This is Norman Rockwell's painting called The Gossip. And if you can see on the very top corner, the gossip starts the information. And then the information passes all the way down till it gets to our final person and back to the person who originally said it. So, of course, this isn't going to happen in the New Testament. But textual criticism is like we have what we know what this guy said. We know what that guy said. We know what that woman said. We're trying to find out what the original woman said, right? So we're taking all the bits that we have and trying to figure out what was in the original. Does that make sense to you guys? So, so it's an academic discipline that tries to, to figure out what that original manuscript said. And, um, and so we have no original text of anything in the Bible. We don't have what John wrote. We don't have the actual letter that Paul wrote. But we do have copies from the second century on. And so what we're trying to figure out in textual criticism is what is the best explanation of what Paul originally wrote or what John originally wrote when he wrote the Gospel. And so they call the original manuscript the autograph. And that is what was originally written by the author or by his scribe if it was written by his scribe. So there are approximately 2,500 points of disagreement in the New Testament. And just so you know, none of these are important disagreements. So none of them are about important issues. They're not like going to change what we believe. They're like, did, was this an and or a but? Or was this a, you know, was this little fragment at the end of this sentence there or not? But nothing of significance for doctrine or belief. 
on these points of disagreement. And why are there points of disagreement? First of all, the scribes made unintentional errors. So they're copying and they were going along and by mistake they changed the letter or they changed the word. And sometimes there are intentional alterations. Maybe a scribe thought, oh, this can't be what was originally written. I'm going to change it. So I'm just going to explain to you what those errors might be. So the unintentional errors is you're copying along and you skip a line. You know how your eye does that when you read sometimes and you miss a whole line? A scribe could have made that as an error. So something was left out. Or maybe they repeat a word. They wrote it at the end of the line and then they wrote it at the beginning of the next line. We see that as well. And they make mistakes with letters which look or sound the same. You just hope those scribes didn't have dyslexia. <laughs> you can tell a dyslexic scribe if they've changed a lot of letters. Um, and then because there were no, um, there were no uh, breaks between words in the original, there could be a mistake where they, when they started adding breaks where they made the break between the two words. Those are the unintentional errors. Now, the intentional errors, they call them smart scribes. So they thought they knew better (laughs) what the original autograph said than the the copyist before them. So they fix it for people. So they tried to improve the character of the Greek. So maybe the person who originally wrote it had bad grammar. So they try and fix it to make it look less embarrassing. Uh, They use, yeah, they remove slang, unusual spellings, this poor grammar to fix it. They sometimes corrected the manuscripts on the doctrinal grounds. So this can't be right. This isn't really right. I'm going to fix this for, again, the poor scribe before me. And so how do they tell? How do they tell um, when these errors were made, were they intentional, unintentional, and what really should it have said? So they, they look at some, there's some criteria. So for instance, if you have, say these are all manuscripts, and you're trying to figure out what the original book of John has. You have these three manuscripts, and you have some criteria that textual critics have developed to say, oh, this is, this is closer to the original than this manuscript. Okay, so I'm going to give you what those are. The date. So usually the oldest copy is going to be more accurate than the later copy. Usually. Secondly, the geographical distribution. So we know that copyists in one um, area <coughs> tended to make more intentional changes. We're smarter scribes than one in another area. We're going to go with the copy of the people in the area that we knew didn't tend to make changes. Does that make sense? So I'll explain that a little bit more. So some say if we want to say copies made in Alexandria are going to be more accurate than copies made in Constantinople. That might be a a way they would make those decisions. Um, Again, their quality or textual family, so where they came from, that's part of also the geographical. These these, um, kind of texts tend to be more accurate. And then there's also internal criteria they have for judging them. So they would say the more difficult reading is probably more accurate. So what, because scribes tended to make things simpler or easier to understand, then they would take the one that was the worst grammar, for instance. Oh, this guy probably fixed the grammar. We're going to take the worst grammar for the original. The shorter reading. Another thing copyists tended to do was to add. And so sometimes even uh, scribes would write a comment in the margin 
And then the next copyist wouldn't know whether that was a comment in the margin or part of the original text, so he might add it. So if it's, if it's shorter, it tends to be more accurate than if it's longer, because longer tended to be this, this addition, this comment that might have been included. And non-harmonistic reading, that means if, again, copyists might try and make things look closer, so maybe they want to make Mark and Mark's story and Luke's story look more similar, so they're just going to try and change one of them. So again, that would be considered not usually not as accurate. And then also stylistic agreement. So if Paul has a certain way of saying things, and then one text has Paul sounding different, they're going to choose the manuscript that is sounds more similar to the rest of Paul's writing. And that it makes sense itself. The best explains the rest. And so the, if you can explain, so for instance, you have your three manuscripts here, and then I can explain how this manuscript got this by a certain way, and this manuscript got this by a certain way, then we're going to consider this the original. That makes sense? So I can explain, oh, this guy left out this letter, and this guy added this word. So that's, that's another way they'll try and determine it. Okay. So, um, the, um, I guess, just a sec, we're already on this slide. I'm thinking we're somewhere else. original or sit close to the original of um, what they would have had back in the day. And most text critics would say yes, it's reliable. So they don't, none of the variant readings, these 2500 disputes, affect any major point of Christian doctrine and 98% of the 6,000 manuscripts are in agreement. So it's very accurate. There are some slight questions, but it is very accurate. And, um, but, and part of that is we have such a huge number of manuscripts. And the more manuscripts that are found, the more it confirms that what we have is accurate. So for instance, in 1993 we had 88 papyra. Now we have, in 2016, 116 papyra. And so as we get those new papyri, we see that they actually are the same as the other ones we have, which confirms that we have an accurate uh, representation of the original. So in many ways it's almost like a puzzle. Um, you're trying to fit this puzzle together and you're trying to make sure you can get back to the original. And of course, I just want to say before we go on that um, you could, there are people who spend their whole lives in this topic. So I'm giving you a really brief overview, but one of my professors at Regent, Gordon T, was a well-known text critic, and you could just sit and listen to him and be amazed by what he knew and what he taught and his study of the New Testament in that way. So for the Old Testament, it was a very different situation than the New Testament up to about 1948. They had... Their oldest manuscript was found was dated back to 1008 A.D. So that's a thousand years, or probably 1400 years after the Old Testament was formed, 
they have this manuscript, right? And, and so people didn't know if it was accurate. Is it accurate? Did the scribes in the intervening years make changes? And so what we have now is very different than what was originally written back in 400 BC and before. And so the Dead Sea Scroll findings were an amazing finding because what they found is actually what we have for the Old Testament is amazingly accurate. 1,400 years of copyists sitting and copying, and we basically have the same thing. That they spent so much time making sure that translation was accurate that, it, that those are what the Dead Sea Scrolls proved. So what happened in around 1946 in the winter, there was a young Arab boy... Muhammad Adib and his cousin, and they were kind of playing out near these caves and um, near the ruins of Qumran. And European explorers had known about these ruins but hadn't found significant documents at that point. And these guys, this one little boy, he fell into a cave and he found um, these manuscripts. He found this handful of scrolls and so he brought them back to show his family. And there's a, there was a rumor that they destroyed some, but I don't think they did. And what they did is they kept the scrolls and they hung them on a tent pole and tried to figure out what to do with them. And they take them down and they show people, other Bedouins who came by, here, look at these scrolls we found. They must have had a sense there was something valuable about them because they didn't destroy them. And eventually they brought them to um, a dealer to see if they were worth anything. And the original dealer said no. He thought they'd been stolen from a Hebrew temple. And so he didn't think they were very valuable. But they kept trying to find someone to buy them. And eventually, um, a member of the Syrian Orthodox Church came across them and realized that they were valuable. And uh, they contacted St. Mark's Monastery, and they, they began to understand what an amazing find it was. And eventually gathered the scrolls and began to look at them. And now, for the first time, I've put them online for anyone who wants to see. <laughs> so, um, the, so the Dead Sea Scrolls are this amazing find that shows us that the, New, the Old Testament also is accurate and reliable like the New Testament. And the, the Qumran community was a sect that was contemporary with Jesus and John the Baptist. And they were the people who gathered the this scriptures and they copied it and were involved in, in its formation. And so they, in the find, the oldest fragment that they found is from 400 BC. Um, so this is, where, this is where the find was in this area, one of the caves. And that's also a copy of a piece of the manuscript. And so you can see there's spaces between the words already there, but no vowels. So the first, the oldest fragment we found is a part of the book of Samuel from 400 BC. So just think, we moved from having the latest copy 1000 BC to now 1000 AD to 400 BC. 1400 years um, they found this fragment. And again, most of the find had square script, that later script, but there are 12 fragments of this early Hebrew, this Paleo-Hebrew, the, uh, the non-square script. And there was some script that had vowels, the pointed text, and some script did not have vowels. And that's how we know that originally it didn't have vowels, because they found these unpointed texts. And it gave us good information about how the texts were copied and what, what process there was. And it helped us to see, what, again, some of those issues in the New Testament um, 
Copying were the same in the Old Testament. Sometimes people changed consonants by mistake, or they corrected things in the margins. Um, again, you can see that in the, from the Qumran text, what, what happened in the copying process. And we eventually found remains of 600 manuscripts, and every book in the Old Testament has been found by the Book of Esther. Wow. So, that's pretty amazing. And there were seven complete scrolls, which is amazing as well. So, um, so again, can we trust the Old Testament? I think this find shows us that yes, we can trust that the Old Testament again is accurate. And um, so the Targums, um, so now we're going to talk about translation. So let me just go back and do that. So we're going to talk about translation. So again, the Old Testament was given in Hebrew, the New Testament was given in Greek. And as the Bible moved into communities that didn't speak those languages, they had to translate the Bible into the new language that the people were speaking. And so when the Hebrews went into exile, they started to speak the language of the exile. So they began to speak Aramaic. And so the first translation of the Old Testament was is the Targums, and they were translated, and they're um, translated sometime between 400 and 188 BC, and that's into Aramaic. So the Hebrew Bible was translated into Aramaic so the people could understand it. And then the Septuagint was once people started to speak Greek, once the Greeks sort of moved in um, to the Israel to the Palestinian area, they began to translate the Old Testament into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. And that was done sometime between 300 and 200 BC in Egypt. And this is likely the Bible that Jesus had access to, the Septuagint. And many of the quotes that you'll read in the New Testament are actually quotes from the Septuagint and not from the Hebrew Bible. So they were much more using the Septuagint at the time of Jesus. And so just like if I was quoting something now, I'd write down my quote from the NIV. They would write down their quote from the and also the Samaritan Pentateuch was developed around 200 BC and so that was just the first five books of the Bible and if you remember that Jesus meets the woman at the well and she has a different understanding of faith that was because the Samaritans just kind of stopped there after Moses so they had their own form the next major translation that took place of the Bible happened um, in about 382 um, CE, and that was uh, the Vulgate, and that was translating the whole Bible into Latin. And they used the Hebrew, so Jerome was the monk who did it, and he used the Hebrew Old Testament as well as the Septuagint, so that was the Greek translation, so he took both of them, because he was trying to figure out what, okay, what was the original, so he took both of them, and then he also took the Greek New Testament and translated it into Latin. And this version of the Bible was used for hundreds of years in the church. And again, even, even when the church didn't speak Latin anymore, they kept using it as it was some special language. So the, the Bible began to be translated into English um, sometime between the 7th century and 1300 was finally when the whole Bible was translated into English. And so it started then, and, and finally Wycliffe took the Vulgate and translated it into English. And that's Wycliffe's Bible. Now, English translation of the Bible became very controversial because 
a lot of the translators were actually dissident monks, and they were thinking the church wasn't spending enough time looking at the Bible, and because nobody could read Latin anymore, they translated it into the everyday language so the people could read it. And Wicca, for one, um, his, his translation was judged and rejected by church leaders because he used vulgar language. He, and he gave the Bible to people, which caused them to misinterpret it, because right, your regular, everyday person shouldn't read the Bible because they wouldn't understand it. And so he was so judged so badly that 40 years after he died, the church dug him up and burned his body up because they were so mad. But um, Wycliffe, he was, yeah, he, and he did some other things the church considered heretical at that time. But he was the first full translation of the Bible. And again, so he was taking the Latin Bible, which Jerome had translated from the Greek and from the Hebrew and Greek Septuagint. Finally, in the 16th century, Tyndale started to use the, the original manuscripts to translate the Bible into English. So he used the, the Greek and Hebrew text um, and to do that. And he too was burned, well, he was burned while still alive at the stake. So I think Wycliffe got it a little better. And then, so because the church was mad that these Bibles were coming out that, that were sort of from the protesters, they translated their own version, the Catholic version, in the 17th century, and that was the Reims Dewey, I don't know how to pronounce it. And then around that same time, the King James Version came out. And the King James Version was also translated from the Greek and the Hebrew, but it didn't have as, as much access to manuscripts as our modern translations do, and so though the King James was the standard for many years, it's not the best translation because it's missing the best manuscripts in translating. 400 years this year. Yeah, 400 years, wow. Yeah. So when you pick up a translation, how do you know if it's a good translation, if it's an accurate translation, if you should use it? What kind of principles do translators use um, to translate the Bible? And there is, I mean, I'm not a translator, so is anyone here a translator? Okay, well, so I've read about translation principles, but it's not my expertise. But basically, when you're translating something from another language, if the other language has different sentence structure and different ways of speaking, how do you translate it into another language? How many of you guys speak another language? So do you know what I'm talking about then? Because my family are, are South Africans, and my in-laws and my husband speak Afrikaans. And they tell jokes in Afrikaans, and they say it just doesn't work to tell them in English. And I'm listening to their joke. They try and tell me, and it doesn't sound funny. But apparently Afrikaans is a, is a great language for word plays and all kinds of stuff. So, that's the so it's challenging in translation. And so some people think that it's better to translate thought for thought when you're doing the Bible. You want to know what the original said. Other people think it's better to know, um, or sorry, word for word. We want to know what the original Bible said. And then other people want thought for thought. I want to understand it in my own language, the own, my own way I think. More important for me to understand it than it is to know what the original said. So there's these two kinds of forms of translation theory. And so one is a dynamic equivalent translation. And dynamic equivalent is, it sort of conveys the meaning, but it conveys the thoughts of the original. So the dynamic equivalent, and then the formal equivalence, which is we're trying to get it as close to the old as we can. So we're trying to make it sound still Hebrew or Greek um, in the way we convey the meaning. Okay, just a sec. So I'm going to, there. So here's an example of different translations 
and the different theories they use. So I'm going to try and explain this to you. You've got it in your text, so you can see. So word for word is the closest to the original meant intention. So the interlinear Bible, if you ever had one of those, it, it actually just writes the words below. Okay, then there's the New American Standard Bible that's way out there on the word for word idea. David's favorite, the English Standard Version, also out there more word for word. <laughs> if you see, the NIV is kind of smack in the middle there, right? The NIV is like right in the middle between word for word and paraphrase. And uh, along there is the New Jerusalem Bible, the New Revised Standard Version. The New Living Translation is moving towards the Good News Translation. They're moving towards paraphrases. If you ever remember the old Living Bible, the Living Bible, that's a paraphrase, and the message is even the most paraphrases. It's, it's, so here, you know, as we move out this way, you're not, you're not really clear what the original said at all. You're, you're being conveyed more the, the ideas. And over here, you're more clear about what the original said. Does that make sense to you guys? So here I've written this in another form for those of you who like tables more than pictures. So <laughs> the formal equivalence, closer to word for word, and I started with the, again, the top and moved down, and I left the space in the dynamic equivalence because CV and New Living are moving towards a paraphrase, and then those are paraphrases. So some people will say, well, what's the best Bible to use? And um, when I used to work on a university campus, I would take my Bible and I'd talk to students, some who knew Jesus and some who didn't, and I'd try and read portions of the Bible to them. And I used to use the New American Standard, and when I used it, I'd actually have to translate it into English for people. They'd kind of look at me blank, like, what are you talking about? So then I started to use the New International Version because I didn't have to do that. And so what I recommend is for your everyday reading, I would tend to go more for the dynamic equivalence and perhaps even supplement with a paraphrase. But if you're trying to study the Bible and say, what does this mean? I would have at least a copy of a dynamic equivalent and a formal equivalent with you. And the formal equivalent will give you more of a sense of what the original Hebrew word for word would say. Does that make sense to you guys? Whereas, but you might not understand it because it's not written in very good English. It's written more towards the Hebrew. So what I want to do is give you guys a little test to see if you get what I mean. So I have two scriptures written up here. Oh, I gotta go back. And I want you to tell me which one is dynamic equivalent and which one is formal equivalent. So gather in pairs and make a decision in your pair, two or groups of two or three, and make a decision which one you think is dynamic and which one is formal. <laughs> Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.